The following message is a presentation from Grace Baptist Church in Kettering, Ohio. Praise the Lord. Find Revelation chapter number 2. Revelation chapter number 2 and verse number 13. Revelation chapter number 2 and verse number, I should say, 12. And we're going to look at this at the uh, church of Pergamos tonight. Pergamos. And it is a real place on the map over in Asia Minor. And let's find uh, Revelation chapter number 2 and verse number 12. It's the last book of the Bible. And we're going to look at several verses here this evening. Revelation 2 and verse number 12, the Bible says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, in Pergamos, in that city, God had located them there just like he's located us here. And then that a blessing? We're here in the Kettering community, and I wonder what it had been like to receive a letter to the church that is in Kettering, but is here in Pergamos. Write, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days in where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. How do you like to live in the city that Satan dwells in? Now, we believe that, that the Bible is, can be taken literally, literally, right? We believe that? I don't think uh, Jesus is, is using some figurative language here. Uh, we'll get to this in a moment, but that's, that's an awful city in which to dwell. Can you think of some cities that are known for sin and corruption across our country? Yeah? Well, this, yeah, here's a city. Here's the city. Pergamos is a place where God says, where Jesus says, Satan's seat is there. Satan is dwelling there. What a place to live. But God placed that church. You know what? There's a need for churches in, the, in cities that are overtaken by corruption. And we can get all mad about places that are overtaken by corruption, but I, just, I saw a, a, a tweet today from a pastor who says, hey, we can get all mad about Hollywood being a dark place, but where are the church planters coming to plant churches in Hollywood, right? Where are the church planters going to Las Vegas and to, and to, uh, to Seattle, Washington, and so on? Where are the, uh, where are the, uh, where's the people bringing the light to those cities, right? And uh, what, a, what an amazing thing, but God placed Pergam on the, this church in Pergamos right there where Satan dwelt. Verse 14, but I have a few things against thee. I miss verse number 13. I know thy works. You say, what are you doing, pastor? I know where, <laughs> verse number 13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where in Antipas uh, was my faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, a few things. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight 
against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to him to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saying he that receiveth it. Let's bow for prayer, and I'm going to ask right now as we pray, Brother Brandon, if you just open up and ask God to bless your time in the Word. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So Pergamos is a city um, that is in the Asia, Asia Minor area, and uh, it's about 35, 40 miles uh, north and east of Smyrna uh, that we looked at last week. And remember, Smyrna was a place uh, that God did, uh, Jesus did not have a, any note of a conflict or problem with that church. They were a very faithful church. They were a church that was under much um, persecution and uh, suffering, uh, uh, suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. So it, here in Pergamos, a little bit different situation. There was a, uh, there was a, a sense in Pergamos where uh, there was a lot going against the church, a lot going against God's people. Uh, it was a beautiful city. Uh, there was parts of the city, in fact, they had an acropolis and a fortress on a plateau about a thousand feet from the valley floor. So there were some really be beautiful places, uh, major temples that were in Pergamos, uh, temples uh, erected for Zeus, Athena, uh, the god, uh, goddess of victory, uh, Diocenus, uh, uh, a bull god. Uh, there was another god, the serpent god of, uh, of healing, of healing. In fact, uh, along with that, there were some medical schools that were in Pergamos, uh, kind of giving it a, a, a focus for the medical world of that, of that day. They weren't, uh, sometimes I think we look back on people of yesteryears like they weren't very advanced. I think there was a lot more advanced than maybe we realized. But they had a medical school there, and there was, uh, there was a focus around the serpent god of healing with that. Uh, many traveled to Pergamos to, be, uh, to find healing. That's what they thought. They, they come to that uh, sort of uh, like people going to cities with a, a great hospital system uh, to find help in that, that time. Pergamos, um, Pergamos was celebrated as a manufacturing city of ointment, of pottery, tapestries, but also parchment. In fact, the name Pergamos comes from the type of parchment they, they had. There was a little bit of a falling out with another city, and they couldn't get parchment, actual parchment, so they came up with their own type of uh, um, parchment uh, that was made out of some animal skin and so on. So it was known for that. But here in this city, they were also, along with uh, Thyatira and Ephesus, they were known for uh, a presence of the, the doctrine and the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We'll get to that after a while, but there was a struggle even within the Christianity within that city uh, that was getting diluted with uh, worldliness and worldly living. Uh, one of the things that Pergamos and the believers there faced 
was the integration of the, of the government and of the commerce, of the, the unions and so on, and, so, uh, and also of the, the cult worship, the worship of the, the, the Roman emperor and so on, so that, that in order to really make your living in, in Pergamos, uh, similar to uh, Smyrna, you would really have to bow down and worship what the rest of those in Pergamos worship including uh, the emperor uh, and declaring him to be Lord. So many, many times, the, those that confess Christ publicly uh, in their workplace or out in public and witness for him suffered uh, kind of economic shutout. They lost their jobs, they lost opportunities, and it was a very, very difficult thing for those believers in this church in Pergamos to live out their Christianity, to practice it in a way that would honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some did. Uh, Antipas did. He was martyred for, uh, for the faith and for living out his faith. And Jesus even said of many in the church of, uh, at Pergamos that they were living out and they were holding fast to, uh, to him and his name and so on. So there, there was an element of them that, that was doing the right thing and Jesus commends that. But I want us to notice as we open this up tonight, Jesus, every time he comes to the church, one of his churches, he identifies himself uh, in a particular way to them, in a way that they needed to understand. A, a part of his character, a part of who he was, a part of his authority, and who he was, that they really needed to understand if they were going to be faithful to him in that city and throughout, uh, throughout their Christian living. And particularly here, he presents himself as having the authority over the church. And I want you to notice in verse number 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamos. Someone tell me tonight, who's the angel? Just as a matter of review. The pastor of the church. So he's writing to the, to the, the leader of the church. He's the, he's the one, as we learned this morning, he has preeminence in the church. He is the head of the church, right? So he has all authority over the church, correct? So it's not, it's not a, uh, a pastor in the sense of uh, having that authority. That's his authority, but he places an undership. He give, uh, gifts that to the church, and he is holding that pastor accountable, as he says in Hebrews chapter number 13. He's going to hold him accountable for how he led. And so he's writing this letter to that pastor and saying, hey, hey, I, I, I want you to know I'm coming to you. I'm going to say some things to you, and you need to have this corrected in, in the church. This needs to be something that you focus on. So he says, to the angel of the church, in Pergamos. Now, that does not mean that the rest of the church did not need to listen. It was through the pastor that this was going to be given to the rest of the church. So, you have here, he says, these things saith he which hath the sharp, uh, the sharp sword. Now, I want you to really pay, uh, look, at, uh, look at that and, 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 and uh, consider that. Jesus comes to this church and he says, I want you to know I'm the one that has not a sharp sword, but the sharp sword. I want you to think about that. Where else in the Bible, what else in the Bible would give us a little bit of an understanding about what, what is Jesus talking about? What is he trying to illustrate here? What is, what is this sharp sword? Is it a physical sword? It's the word of God. Is there another place in scripture that would, would help, help us to, to understand that? Someone just blurted out. Hebrews? Hebrews 4 and verse number 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
Uh, what about Ephesians chapter number 6 and we're in the armor of God where he tells us to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so he's saying here, listen, I'm coming to you as the one who holds, which hath in his possession, the sharp sword. I really, I really am fascinated by words in Scripture, and especially when, when, it, it, when it's very, very particular. Notice here, Jesus is saying, I possess all authority or soul authority. I have the word of God. I have my absolutely unbreakable word that no one can deny, no one can destroy, no one can do away with. I have possession of it. There's not more than one. It is, there is only one, and I have it. I have the word of God. I have this authority, and it is this, as you think about the, the, the sword, Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that the, uh, those that are in uh, in government over us and those that that enforce the law um, bear the sword not in vain the one who has the sword in that in that situation has the authority uh you don't argue with an officer because he has not the sword but he has the gun right no wise person argues with the officer at that point you, you recognize okay he has the uh, he has the authority in this uh, in this situation and so jesus says i have the sharp sword i have all authority in this, uh, in this situation, and his word does. One of the tenets of, the, of us as a Baptist church is we believe the Bible is our, what? Sole authority for faith and practice. Right, it's not, there are not many authorities for faith and practice. It's not the pastor's authority for faith and practice. It is the word of God that has a sole authority for faith and practice. And Jesus comes to this church at Pergamos and says, I have the sharp sword. And so the Bible uh, tells us over in Revelation 1 and verse 16, and he, Jesus, had in his right hand the seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. It's, it's his word that he is talking about. Revelation 19 and verse number 15, when he comes back at his second coming, when all the armies of the world have gathered in the, uh, in the battle of Armageddon against the nation of Israel, and they're about ready to destroy, it says in uh, Revelation 19, 15, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. It is with the word of his mouth that he destroys all the nations of the world. He has absolute authority right now as all the heathen rage against him. With one word, he can change it all. That's our God. That is Jesus. That's who we serve. That is who is the head of the Grace Baptist Church. And so Pergamos was a, a very important place in which God, uh, Jesus is saying, listen, to you as a church there, I want you to remember, I have all authority. I have sole authority. Think about this. Pergamos was the capital it was a very important town. It was the capital, uh, official capital of the province, and so the residents, uh, the residents were uh, Roman, uh, were residents of the of Roman proconsul, and so they they understood. Hey, this is an important city. It was like our Washington D.C. to America. It was the capital. It was a place. There was a lot of authority floating around that that city. In fact, the proconsuls there, the Roman proconsuls there, enforced the rule their rule with the right of the sword, which it meant the authority to execute whomever they pleased as they would violate a law. So there was, when Jesus was saying, listen, I have the sharp sword, there's, there's an understanding among those in Pergamos, there's an understanding, listen, uh, we know who has authority in this town. We know that if we step out of line, there's, there's some authority. Jesus says, no, 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 I have all authority in the world. 
I have all authority. And it does us well as a church to uh, remind ourselves in a world that vies against the Lord Jesus Christ that he alone has authority. And his word is law. And though the, uh, the heathen might go against it, he has all authority. Notice that word, the. There's not more than one. This did not change from the time he wrote this to Pergamos and till right now. He still has all authority in our world today, and he is fully powerful and, and fully in charge. He has all authority. His word still stands. Aren't you thankful for that tonight? His word still stands, but he possesses effective authority. Notice there, the, the sharp sword with two edges. With two edges. You take a sword with one edge, uh, there's, a, there's a sense that it's effective, but you need to make sure you use the right edge, right? But it has two edges. It makes it very effective. The word of God uh, in, in two ways can work. It can convince, and it does, and change a person's life. It can prick, prick the conscience and change a person's life. Why is it the word of God, we can sit in a, a moment like this, and the word of God begins to prick, and, and we walk out of the service, we say, Lord, I'm going to act on what your word says. That's the power and the effectiveness of the word of God. Another person can be in a service like this or uh, hear the word of God. They, they, can, uh, they can be convinced of it. Oh, man, that's true, but walk out unchanged and therefore find the word of God condemning them. As we see in, in John 3 and verse 18, he says, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, those that believe are not condemned, but those that believe not are condemned already. And so he says, I can convince with it and I can also condemn with it. It is, it is that that brings about judgment and brings about the the, uh, the uh, knowledge of judgment, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, if you know it, say it along with me. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And he says, my word is effective. It has two edges. It is fully effective in your life. And oh, that we would allow the word of God to be effective in our lives. Allow the word of God to be alive in our lives. Allow it to speak into our lives. Allow it to be powerful, as Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says, effective in my life. And it is sharper than any two-edged sword, he says. And it pierces even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. It gets right down to where we live out our, uh, where we think and, and, and right down to the inner, uh, inner side, uh, uh, side of us, right down to the, the very bottom of our soul. And it says it pierces even the dividing of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is the discern of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It can divide right between my thoughts and my intentions. That's sharp. That's really sharp. Now, here's a question for us. Are we allowing God's word to read us in that way? We often talk about reading the word of God, but does God's word read you? Does God's, word, does God's word look into your life and do you allow the sword of the spirit to read you, to divide down your thoughts and intentions, to pierce between your, your heart and your spirit, to get right down to the nitty gritty of your life and to show you what is needed, to convince you where the change is needed. And he says, I, I, have, I possess the effective authority and when I, you allow my word to have authority in your life it is very effective we often look to ourselves to change ourselves uh, that was the era of the galatian church right they 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 understood that they were saved by faith but they forgot that they were sanctified set apart made christ-like by faith Oftentimes we, we look, well, uh, you know, boy, that's, that's good in the word, and, and I'll, do, I'll try to do better. I'll, I'll try to do better tomorrow. I'll, I'll, be, I'll have a better Monday. No, no, no. He says, allow my word to be effective in your heart. 
Allow my word to, to have free course in your life. It is the word of Christ that has the ability to effectively change us. Keep letting it come into your life. The entrance of thy word giveth what? Light, illumination, direction. Change this. Keep doing this. Good job here. Uh. It's his word that is effective in our lives. So he is the one possessing all authority. He announces himself to the church in that way because they needed to understand if they were going to confront the issues that had crept into the church, it was going to be the word of God, the authoritative word of God that was going to change them. It wasn't going to be a new program. It wasn't going to be going to a conference and figuring out a new way to do church and be effective. It, it was going to be allowing the word of God to have entrance and a priority in the church, allowing it to be authoritative in their lives, and it was going to be difficult. There was going to be some things that they were going to have to set aside and turn away from, but if they would allow the word of God to be authoritative, there's a lot of times in our, in our lives we don't allow the word of God to be authoritative. We hear it, but we say, ah, you know what, I've heard some other preachers say it this way, or I, 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 I don't know, I, you know, I'll deal with that in, at another time. The fact is we need to allow the word of God to be authoritative in my life, in our lives, and in the life of our church. What it says goes. And while it's questioned, and that's a ploy of Satan, is it not? Well, it's questioned oftentimes and often in our, in our culture today, and it's set aside as kind of an old historical book, 2,000-year-old book that we shouldn't follow anymore. Listen, it is authoritative in our lives. Here at Grace Baptist Church, we believe it is our sole authority for faith and practice, and we want to live that out in our lives. We want to live that out. And can I hear an amen there? Are you with me on that? It has to be our sole authority. The moment we stop accepting this as authoritative, the word of Christ is authoritative, we, we lose our reason for existing. This has authority, and this is what's going to change our lives. You did not gather here to hear me, and, and I hope in a sense that you'll forget me and, and, and tonight and that you'll hear the word of Christ. And that, that though he uses us as messengers, but remember, it's his word. Please grab a hold of his truth tonight and walk with it this week. Let it be authoritative in your life. Let it change you. Let it have all authority. It's, it's not, you can argue, you can argue with a messenger, right? I can argue with a messenger, but it doesn't change the fact, it doesn't change the message. And the fact is, his word is authoritative. We need to accept it tonight. Yes, Lord. I will allow it to have full sway in my life. Now, notice what the one who has all authority does with his church. As he's done with every church, he analyzes it. He inspects it. Um, back when we went and looked uh, at the bus that is out there, the shuttle bus, it was used, so we wanted to make sure that we got a pre-purchase inspection. And when we called up the, the, uh, the mechanic that was doing that, we told him, we want you to look at everything. We want you to tell us everything about this vehicle. The, the good points, the bad points, and everything in between. We want you to tell us everything about it. Why? Because we want to know what we're getting into. Now, we all understand that's a great thing, right? You'd say, Pastor Deacons, that was a wise thing to do, right? Because that, that, that's prudent. We want to know ahead of time what's wrong with this thing or what's right with this thing so we know what we're getting into. Yet sometimes when we look at Christ inspecting us in our lives, we're like, oh, I don't know. 
But what happens if the things that are going on in our church or in our individual lives five years down the road means our church doors would close or we lose our effectiveness in the community? You say, I'd want to know about that now. Yeah, I would too. I'd want to know about that right now. And that's not God being mean or cruel to us. That is God being extremely merciful to us. Look at this letter tonight, not as God saying, oh, you, you guys are just all out of, uh, out of whack and I'm, I'm so upset at you. No, it's God coming to them to try to preserve that church and his influence and his witness in Pergamos. And without Jesus Christ coming to him and saying, listen, these are the good things and these are the bad things, there's going to be no sort of way for them to know what to address so that they can stay on the road, so to speak, and they can keep their influence and light in that community. And so it's so important to allow Christ to inspect. And so he sends a real letter to a real church with an inspection report. Here's what's good and here's what's not good. He says in verse 13, if I can sum it up, he says, you've been loyal to me in the center of wickedness. In the center of a city that is very, very against me. In fact, it is the location in which the arch enemy of God exists and has set up his domination. You have been loyal to me. Look at there. It says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. I know your works. I know your your actions, I know your deeds, I know what fills your schedule, I know what your priorities are, I know everything that goes on, I know all your activity, all of your programs, I know everything that you're doing as, collectively as a church, I know about it, and I know where you're located. Now, I find that to be encouraging tonight, that Jesus knows where we're located, because you know how many times, you know how many times that we say something like this? Um, we hear someone say, God is really working in this area. And we say, well, but we, we live in a city that's very hardened to the gospel. And we live in a city that's, that's against God. You know, Jesus knows right where he's placed us. He, he can make us effective for him. Right where he's placed us. You say, eh, so many people in our community are focused on good works for salvation. That's what they believe. They, they believe that if they can be just good enough and they go to confession and if they go through, uh, through the Mass, they can be good enough for heaven. And the fact of the matter is, the Bible, uh, Jesus is saying to this church um, that was right there in Pergamos in the midst of all the, the idolatry and all the false religion, he says, listen, I know right where you are. I know your location. I know where you are. You're, you're there where Satan's seat is. Two times in that verse he says that the idea of seat is the authority or the throne of Satan. That's scary. I mean, Satan is incredibly evil. And to exist and to live, to be located, to have your church, that a gospel witness in a place where his authority is centered, the epicenter of his authority, is quite something. And, and, and what, a, what a challenge that would be. Though unseen, Satan had set up his throne in Pergamos for his anti-God uh, efforts around the world at that point. Now, I, I don't know the ways of Satan, and, and frankly, I'm, I'm glad that God doesn't tell us all that. He tells us to be on guard, but I'm thankful that we don't know everything that, um, that he, uh, he has going on. But I'm, I'm telling you here, he says, listen, you're right in the center of it. And I acknowledge that. That's significant. Um, 
This was the center of pagan religion. It was also the, the official seat of emperor worship in the provincial Asia. Uh, the status of temple warden was conferred on Pergamus by Rome in 29 BC. And uh, it was with the temple that, uh, that was built officially in Pergamus to Augustus Caesar. And that temple established the cult worship of the emperor uh, there in Pergamus before Ephesus and before Smyrna got involved in that. So they kind of blazed the way for, for uh, worship to the emperor. So everyone in the city was expected to, to get on board with the culture and with the, the cult on uh, the religion there and just bow, um, bow down to, um, bow down to uh, the emperor and, uh, and say that he was Lord. The demand of this emperor um, cult to confess Caesar as Lord caused many to be martyred for their faith, as we learned even last week in, in Smyrna. So this was a very difficult thing. But I want us to realize God is saying this is the place where Satan has set up his dominance, the epicenter of this. And part of that, no doubt, was this, this was the very center of emperor worship where God was, was demoted and government was exalted, where the dictator was exalted and expected to be worshipped. As the one who would provide all things, as the one who was in, in charge of all things, the one who had all authority, and as, the, as a government, as a dictator, taking the rightful place of, of God. What a, what a horrible thing. Even in our country today, we are one nation, what? Why is that being fought for? Why is that being fought against? Why is that one phrase in there such a problem? Yeah. Nations love to exalt themselves. Governments love to exalt themselves over God. And right here, this was going on. They were blazing the trail for it in Asia Minor, uh, minor for this exact thing, emperor worship. But the second thing I think that might be part of why God said that, that Pergamos was the center where Satan was working, uh, Pergamos had something kind of interesting uh, that went on in it. Second to Alexandria. Does anyone remember what Alexandria was known for? library. They had the second largest library there in Pergamos. And it kind of goes along with their, their parchment, but they had the second largest library, some 200,000 volumes. I can be guaranteed that it did not have the Christian section in it, right? Uh, it, it, it was a place where worldly philosophy was, was held. It was a center for that. And similar to what happens today, uh, you find that Satan works through the publishing of worldly philosophies through books, magazines, TV. You say, that, that's a stretch. No, no, no. In their day, they had books. They had scrolls. And they were centered therein as a second, uh, second largest centering of it, centered there in Pergamos. Yet there is no doubt that this was a place where worldly philosophies were housed and were also published. And even in our day, as we, as we consider that as, as Satan would work through the publishing, yes, Satan works through the, uh, through the airwaves. Yes, Satan works through the TV content. Yes, Satan works through the podcasting, the YouTube, and the social media, and all these different things to project a message and worldly philosophy upon a culture. Listen, Satan, I, if Satan could be housed somewhere, it's probably inside of a computer somewhere these days, and I'm not against computers, you understand. But you understand that this was a place where there was not only emperor worship going on, 
Government being exalted above God, but there was also the publishing of many worldly philosophies there. Colossians 2 and verse 8 reminds us that we should beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy or vain, empty deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Something the people in Pergamos needed to remember and to account for. And so he says, I know where you are. I know where you're located right where Satan is working, right where he's thriving and working. I don't know where Satan is thriving and working today, but if God places us in the center of it, he expects us to thrive for him. And he says, listen, I know what's going on there. I know where you are, and I see that you have been loyal to me. Look at verse 13 with me again. Revelation 2 and verse 13. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where in Antipas, my faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Where he dwelleth. Listen, I know that you've been faithful to me. I know that you've, been, you, you've held fast my name. You've not let go of the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. You have not uh, denied who I am as God. You've not denied my gospel. That's what he's saying there. You, you've not denied my, my name. You've not denied my faith. You've held on to this. You've continued to, to say, we stand with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, we should too, shouldn't we? Are you there? We should. Oh, do you realize that, that Satan wants to do nothing more than to water down the gospel. Just, just like we talked about this morning, the, the popularity contest that goes on in, 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 our, in our country and pop Christianity has done so much damage to the gospel. We need to be bold and continue to raise the gospel high and remind people that, that there is judgment, there is accountability before a holy God, but there's also forgiveness from a holy God, and that, that's the reality of it. Yes, there's a hell, but there's also a heaven to be gained. Yes, there is condemnation, but there's forgiveness to be had. Yes, uh, these, things are, these things are true together. We can't, we can't let one go so many times in popular Christianity. We don't want to talk about hell anymore. But I'll tell you what, when I read Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 14, and death and hell were cast in the lake of fire, and this is the second death. And anyone whose name was not written in the book of life shall be cast into the lake of fire. And I want you right now to think about some of your friends that don't know Jesus Christ. And your neighbors who don't know Jesus Christ. And the people you bump into in the store that you have contact with that don't know Jesus Christ. It is nonetheless true. God says if their name is not in the, the Lamb's book of life, they will be cast into the lake of fire. We have the saving message. How can we deny that? How can we turn from it? How can we water it down? They did not. They continue to strive together for the faith of the gospel, for the message of the gospel. They, were, they stood on it. Jesus said that. How much we should do the same. They didn't have an easy life in that city as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, but they, they were loyal to Christ. That's commendable. That's commendable. And remember this. You might not agree with everyone that, that is a Christian, that's a follower of Jesus Christ, but you know what I can appreciate in people who are loyal to Jesus Christ? Jesus appreciated this. We should appreciate that, and we should ourselves be loyal to Lord Jesus Christ, but we quickly turn the page because their loyalty was in grave danger. This is really important for us to grab a hold of. 
we can be loyal to Jesus Christ today, but there are some things that we can allow into our lives that put our loyalty to him in grave danger, our allegiance to him in grave danger, where, case in point, a person might be standing with Christ today, but some of the things they allow in their life might cause them to err and to walk away from Christ tomorrow. Not in the sense of losing their salvation, but uh, walk away from Christ in the, in the future where they've allowed something to undermine their own loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a few things. Do you, do you see that in verse number four, um, 14? He says, but I have a few things against thee. Let's say that together. But I have a few things against thee. He commended them, and that's what he always does. He commended and then he got to the, the matters they needed to change. He commended them, but I have a few things against thee. I want us to notice in verses 14 and 15 that there, the word doctrine comes up how many times? Asking you to think tonight. I don't want you to go to sleep. Two times. Two times. Now that's very key. Because doctrine means teaching, the instruction. And so uh, uh, you can have the doctrine of math, right? But when we're talking about doctrine, we're, uh, we're, uh, in the Word of God, we're talking about the teaching, the communication, the instruction of the Word of God. It's profitable for, for doctrine, for the instruction of God's truth to us. And so he says here, two times there's some doctrines, but these weren't good doctrines. In fact, the doctrines that were being taught around Pergamos and within the Christian community uh, that they had grabbed onto were doctrines that okayed the practices of the world within the lives of the believers. So they were loyal to Christ, yet there were some doctrines that, that they were allowing to circulate within the church that were teaching them, hey, it's okay if you live a little bit like the world. If you adopt some of their practices, it'll be okay. God's not concerned with that in your life. It's as long as you stand with the gospel, and that is an exact teaching that goes on today, friends. As long as you stand on the gospel, everything else is all right. I'm here to tell you, Jesus came to the church of Pergamos, which is also in America today, and told them, that's not okay with me. I'm not okay with you allowing wor the world and world likeness to come into your, to your assemblies and into your gatherings and into your preaching. He says, you've been loyal to me within the church, but you've also allowed some world likeness within the church. Some worldliness, as we often say it. Uh, you've allowed some few things, and I have these few things against you. Let's break down these doctrines. The doctrine of Balaam. He says in verse 14, Because thou hast them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak, that was King Balak in the Old Testament, to cast a stumbling block, notice that word, before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Sounds like a great guy. Now, Balaam was, was known as a prophet of God. But he goes to this, he has this interaction with a pagan king, a worldly king, uh, to set up Israel and cause them to fall uh, and, 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 and walk away from the Lord or walk away from his commandments. Notice it says that he, he, uh, he taught Bal um, Balak. Uh, he went to Balak and helped him to understand, how can you get the Israelites to trip up? Now, notice this word stumbling block. This isn't just like uh, to cause them to, to trip and you know, fall on their face. This is literally the word for a snare. Uh, it, it has the idea of a death trap. It is not intended that those that get caught up in a stumbling block in this situation would ever come out of it. 
So Balaam, supposedly a prophet from God, a preacher for God, is going to a pagan king or coming at the, at the request of a pagan king, and he is helping them to understand how do you trip them up or put them in, cause them to walk into a death trap so that you can be rid of your enemy, Israel. You talk about a traitor to God. Balaam is, a, is mentioned some 18 times in Scripture, never in a good light. Never. By the way, those that compromise with the world will, will, will always be in a negative light in God's eyes. You never win by compromising with the world. You never win by saying, uh, if they say, well, come this far, help me out to, to accomplish this. We never win. We never win. So Balaam accepted a bribe from Balak to set this snare, this death trap for the people of Israel. How did he do it? He induced them into idolatrous feasting and as well fornication. So he tells, he tells uh, King Balak, send your women down into there, get them, uh, get them enjoying food and drink and so on, and, and cause them to commit fornication as they, as they do this, as they have these, these unlawful uh, relationships with one another in the sight of God. They'll, they'll walk away from their God, and God's, God's judgment will come upon them. What an awful thing. He did it. Numbers chapter 25 and verse number 1, and Israel, Bowden, Shittim. And the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the, people, uh, called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. Notice that, their gods, the gods of Moab. And the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, take all the heads of the people and hang them uh, 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 them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges, slay ye every one of his men that is joined at Baal Peor. All those that got involved in it faced the judgment of God. You say, that is awful. That's exactly why I'm against the Bible. And you know, I, 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 I don't like that. Do you realize that God is a holy God? And the Old Testament reveals to us that God is holy. He reveals there's always an answer in turning back to him and seeking forgiveness in him. But God does not take sin lightly. And Balaam knew that if he could just get the king of Moab to entice his people with a sin, he would bring God's judgment upon him. And what's going on here uh, in, in Numbers 31 and verse 16? Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, through a preacher's word, to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. Wow. So what God says to the church of Pergamos is in similar manner this is going on in your city. He uses Balaam as, a, as a, an illustration. Notice in verse number 15, so in a similar way hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. You have some preachers running around, some people that are known as leaders within the church, and they're preaching this doctrine. Hey, you can go along with these idolatrous feasts. You can go up to the Caesar's uh, temple, and you can go along with this. You can commit acts of fornication and adultery there in, in, the, in the, the, um, the temples and, and go along with the religious practices. You can get involved in their feasts, and it'll be all right as long as you stay loyal to the gospel. 
As long as you stay loyal to Jesus Christ, he is my Savior and he's my Lord. And, and so as long as you stay loyal to this, you'll be all right. And what they were doing, they were undermining their loyalty to God. They're undermining their loyalty to Christ. And so the Nicolaitans, just to go a little bit further, was a sect, um, that, a sect that sprung up a, a group of religious um, thinkers and, and followers according to the credible uh, tradition. And, and, and uh, there's not a lot said that dives in, but by Jesus giving us illustration from Balaam, we understand that it had to do with idolaters feasting and fornication and so on but according to tradition it 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 says that uh from nicholas the proselyte it rose up in antioch one of the the seven deacons of the church of jerusalem acts 6 and verse number 5 who apostatized from the truth and came and became the founder of an antinomian a gnostic sect a a, a way of thinking a a, a religious way of thinking and and antinomian being lawless living so at some point along the way in the early church, this, this idea that, boy, I'm saved and I can live however I want, crept into the church. Someone proposed that doctrine and began to preach it and to carry it along from pe- on person to person, and it became infiltrated even over in this city of Pergamos. They appear to have been characterized by sensuality, seducing Christians to participate in idolatrous feasts of pagans and to unchastity, to immorality, which was rampant rampant in the worship of the gods of that day and by the way rampant in the worship of the gods of america in this day including the god of entertainment and the god of uh, of fame the god of money and so on it's rampant in our day it's just not seen you don't go to a temple so god's saying You've allowed this to creep into the church. You say, how can they allow something so awful to creep into the church? It doesn't look that awful. How is it that the American church has become so, so worldly? I remember preachers when I was a kid um, preaching about how, uh, how that we have become so worldly and we stay about 40 years behind the world, Right? How is it that we've become so worldly in America? How is it that we've lost our light? How is it that we've undercut our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ in the American church and in churches like ours? How is it? It's a little bit, a little bit of time. That's not so bad. I Really, we, we used to be against that, but we're not really against that anymore. Right? And we allow the worldliness in one little bit at a time. We allow that doctrine, that teaching in one little bit at a time. And I have an imagination that Jesus would say to the church in America, I have a few things against thee. You've allowed in the doctrine of the Nicolaitans right into your churches and right into your lives. You know, it's easy sometimes. We're gathered together as a group of people, but more than just being concerned about a church in general, we've allowed some of these doctrines right into our own lives. Where is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans within your own life and within your own family? You say, well, I'd never go to an idolatrous feast and I, I, I honor my marriage vows and so on, but you know we can allow a lot of worldliness right into our lives, worldly thinking, worldly philosophies, and so on. And so for Ephesus, Jesus noted to them, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. It's going on. But here he says, I'm noticing that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the teaching of the Nicolaitans is going on, and I hate that as well. You remember this, that, that doctrine, what is taught always leads to deeds always and uh, when we when we don't like doctrine we try to change the doctrine 
to justify our deeds, don't we? Well, does God's word really say that? That was a ploy of Satan. Does God's word really say that? No, God's word needs to stand as authoritative. It is what was going to rescue Pergamos out of this, this situation. It was going to take them from being losing their light and potentially uh, uh, stepping away from their loyalty to Jesus Christ and cause them to be fervent for the Lord Jesus Christ once again. The Bible tells us, 1 John uh, 15, uh, 2 and verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Uh, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You have this doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, it essentially equaled world-likeness. Not Christ-likeness, world-likeness. And they were embracing the world. And Jesus says, no, I don't want you to love the world. I don't want you to love the things that are in the world, in the world system, the world thought process. That doesn't mean don't go enjoy some of the foods of the world. It does mean don't imbibe the thought process. Don't imbibe the mentality. Don't imbibe the philosophies of the world. Don't go along with, they say it's good, so it's all right to do. They say it's all right to go in a bathroom that isn't, uh, isn't for your gender. Uh, don't just go along. Oh, it's okay. We won't go there. No, this is insanity. This is, this is confusion of the utmost sense. Our world is messed up. We don't go along with this. They say it's okay for men to love men and women to love women. No, it's not. God says it's not okay. It's against God, and it brought down his wrath upon the, on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a problem. We can't just be like, oh, you know, it's all, it, it's all right. We're, we're going to just be. No, we don't go along with the world. We don't allow that, uh, that uh, to, to be okay with us. It says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It gets down to right where we live. The lust, what pleases my flesh. The lust of the eyes, what looks good. What looks good. The pride of life. Oh, I could be there. I could have that position. I could. He says, all this is of the world. It's not of the Father, it's of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Oh, the pride, of, uh, the, the lust of the eyes. Oh, if I just had that vehicle, and then I get it, and then it gets keyed. I got to the house, and it falls apart. He says, it's all the world. It's all going to pass away. Don't fall in love with it. He gives us things richly to enjoy, but he says don't fall in love with it. The ones that do the will of God abide forever. Why is it that we're more distraught about the wickedness in the world around us sometimes than the wickedness that has crept in, the world-likeness that has crept into my own heart in our own church? And we don't realize this is bleeding us of our loyalty to, unto Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus Christ desires. And then we, we stop and think and hesitate. Well, do I really want to do that, friends? You mark it down, that is a red flag signaling you've gotten some worldliness in the heart. If you, if you hesitate at what the Lord is asking you to do, you've got some worldliness going on in your heart. People hesitate at following the will of God. If, God, if I follow the will of God, it'll bring me to a place that, that might be difficult to live in and might be a, uh, be, um, be, uh, be a place of persecution. If we hesitate to follow the will of God, it's probably a red flag that some worldliness has gotten into our heart. I want you to turn over to John 17, verse number 13. We can do really good sometimes as preachers and as people at commenting at all the wickedness that's going on in our world. But you know something tonight? Jesus did not come to his church there in Pergamos and say to them, 
I want you to go out and do battle against the seed of Satan. I want you to change this. He did not go and say, I want you to revolutionize this, this city. There's a lot of evil here. You bring, you bring righteousness to the city. You know what he says? I want you to take care of the worldliness that has gotten inside of you and the church. And this is exactly in accordance with his prayer in John chapter 17. When he prayed, John 17, verse 13, And now come I to thee, speaking to the Father. And these things I speak in the world, that they, my disciples, might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Do you still believe that Jesus wants his joy to be fulfilled in you? That's what he desires. He says in verse 14, I have given unto them thy word. And the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from, uh, uh, keep them from the evil. Do you notice that? And so many times we're thinking, oh, I could, I could really live a godly life if Jesus would just take me home to heaven with him. Then it'll all be over and it'll all be better. I can get away from all the sin. No, Jesus says, I I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out of the world right now. I'm asking you to protect them and guard them and keep them from the evil that's in the world. For them not to allow the evil to creep into them. Verse 16. That they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Set them apart through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Do you notice here that Jesus goes back to the way to keep the evil out of me and the way to keep the evil out of the church and the world likeness out of the church goes back to the word of Jesus Christ. And it's why there is no doubt in our day where we get less and less focused on the word of God, get more focused on the programs and the show in services than we do on the word of God. It is the word of God that will cleanse us. It is the word of God that will change us. It is the word of God that we need. It is only when you and I are thoroughly right with Jesus Christ that we can make a difference in the world that is so wicked around us. It is when we allow the world to creep into my heart, into us as a church together, that we lose our influence, we lose our salt, we lose our light in which we live. No amount of loyalty to the gospel can ever make your world-likeness commendable in the sight of Jesus Christ. And so often we do that. We, we try the distraction. Well, God's not pleased with this, but God, don't you notice that I'm loyal to you right here? No amount of loyalty to Jesus Christ and to his word and to his gospel. You can thump the Bible all day long, but if there's worldliness that has been allowed into your life, it is not commended in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will cause you to have problems in your life, your family, your relationships, and within the church in time. You can die for the faith. Antipas died for the faith. There were people who were dying for the faith in that city, yet they were not right with Christ. They were allowing, they were allowing this worldliness to creep in. You can die for the faith and not be right with Christ. So what's the solution? What did Christ give as a directive to his church? He says, repent. There is a good old Bible word that we get really scared of. But he says, repent, 
turn, change your mind. What he says here is forsake the temporary worldly satisfaction that you've been going after. You're thinking, this will make me happy. This feast will make me happy. Indulging in this will make me happy. This is what I need in order to live and enjoy life. He says, repent or else I will come to thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Reconsider your ways. We need that in America. We need that in our church. Friends, I need that in my life. We need to pause and take, take order, take inventory of our life. We need to pause and allow the searchlight of the Holy Spirit to, to, to go into the dark places of our heart and say, search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way, any world-like way in me. Any way that displeases you, there is no substitute for repentance. If we're going to be right with God, and if we're going to be a church that's revived, if you're going to be a person that is revived in your walk with God, if you're walking in victory, there is no substitute for repentance. There is no other way around it. God himself said in 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14, to the nation of Israel, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and what? Turn from their wicked ways. Turn from their world-like ways, their ways of adopting the ways of the nation. And those ways of the nation always bringing them into bondage. God said, if you want healing in your land, you're going to have to turn from your world-like ways. Come back to me. There's no substitute for repentance. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one, the one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is... holy, completely set apart from sin. And if I desire to have a relationship with him, if I desire to be pleasing to him, I'm thankful that Jesus Christ made it it possible for me to stand positionally righteous before him right now. Before the service, I asked Brother Brandon how he's doing. He said, perfect, positionally. He's right. But practically, you and I sometimes... We don't live that out. I'm thankful for the fact that my salvation is settled at the foot of the cross. I'm thankful for that. But, but God says, I, I want to practically live out. And if that's going to be the case, he says, I, 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 I'm the one uh, that is holy. My name is holy. And I, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite spirit to revive. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. What is a contrite heart? A broken heart. A heart that's not cavalier about sin. A heart that is not, oh, whatever, about worldly philosophies dominating our thinking. A heart that is sincere towards God. No repentance in this verse. You look at it and tell me if I'm interpreting this wrong, but no repentance equals Christ himself coming suddenly and fighting against his own with the word of his mouth. Taking a not that he stops loving us, but taking a, a position against his own. That's a scary thing. Look at it with me. Did you see that? In verse number 16, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, with the word of God. I'm going to come and I'm going to reprove them with the word of God. 
And we're all going to stand before him and have that day. I'm thankful I'm perfectly accepted into the beloved, but he is going to hold us to account for how we've lived our Christian lives. He is saying to a church right here, you repent or else. I don't know about you, I almost put it in the notes in the outline. I was, I was struggling with this wording, but it really kind of sounds like an, an ultimatum. I wonder how many churches, how many, how many Christians right now Christ has said this to. And, and they have resisted and there is an active stance from Jesus Christ against them. Does Jesus still close down churches today? Let me ask you a question. Does, does God want light taken out of the community? Yes or no? But can a church become so worldly that Christ allows it to close its doors? I don't think Jesus is any different than what he was to these churches. I think he still has churches closed, and sometimes we, we, we cry about it, but it was, it was for that community's good because they weren't being a good testimony. God, help us not to be in that case. If there's worldliness in your heart tonight that the Holy Spirit's convicting you about, deal with it. Like, this is serious. Our, our, the head of our church is talking to us through his word, and he's saying, hey, get this stuff taken care of. And repentance is the only way. And, and none of us, none of us are exempt from this. He says in James 4 and verse 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Did you catch that? Enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. You cannot have both. You cannot have world-likeness and Christ-likeness at the same time. They are not able to be in the same person at the same it, it, it's not it's not possible it's like light and darkness it is not possible he says first um, peter 4 and verse 17 for the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of god and if it first begin at us what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel god is going to hold his people you and me to account for how we're living and whether we are allowing world likeness into our life or whether we're saying i want to be more like christ more like the master more like him i want to be every single day allow him to have full uh, control in my life allow him to have full authority in my life embracing world like living will always will always place me into direct conflict with my Savior and with his word. Conflict with him. And again, not to the point, not, we're not talking about losing our salvation, but I am, I am opposing, when I, when I say yes to the world, I'm opposing the one who died to, to save me and to rescue me out of the world. I, I, I can't do both. And he's telling this church who is trying to straddle the fence, who's trying to say, yes, we stand for the gospel, but we'll go to this feast. Yes, we stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, but we'll go to that event. Yes, we will, we will say uh, we, we stand for the gospel and we, we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, but we engage in worldly philosophies and we entertain these things and we, we uh, hang out with the world, not to witness to them, but we hang out because we enjoy their company. He says, you can't do this. Repentance is needed. Stop trying to find satisfaction in the world. The other option that he gives 
is you can find total satisfaction in what he gives. Look at verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear. Aren't you thankful that Jesus never just says, uh, all right, you're done. There's a way out. There's a way of hope. There's always a way for us to be closer to him than uh, when we began. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give him to eat of the hidden manna. I want to break this verse down. What Jesus is saying, listen, if you will say no to the world, if you'll repent from this and turn back to me and allow my word to be authoritative in your life, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you hidden manna. What was manna? It was what sustained them in the midst of the wilderness. Hidden manna. I'm going to give you sustenance that the world can't see. You know, some people wonder why we read the Bible. But do you know the fact is, this gives me spiritual food that the world doesn't understand because they're, they're spiritually discerned. They do not have the capability of understanding the beautiful truths of this word that provide me strength even beyond, beyond physical food. What did Jesus say to Satan? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus was 40 days hungry, and he was saying, listen, I want you to understand, Satan, that this gives me sustenance that you don't know anything about. I don't need the, um, the physical food. I have everything I need in the word of God. And so he says, I'll give you nourishment. I'll give you satisfaction, spiritual food that truly satisfies my deepest craving, my deepest longing. There are many believers and no doubt with even in our assembly that have deep longings that have not yet been filled because they've not opened up the word of God and allowed the word of God. They've not said no to worldliness. They've continued to try to embrace that will. Uh, staying loyal to Christ, they've not allowed the word of God to feed their souls. Psalm 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Oh, yes. The word. I think we can all grow in that. Jeremiah said he took the word of God, they were found, and he ate them, and there were joy and rejoicing of his heart. Boy, that's what we need to be like. But what's this white stone? Beautiful picture of purity. Purity. Heeding the word of God will always result in pure living in your life. Allowing the word of God to be authoritative in your family and in your life uh, dads, we will always bring about purity within your life and your family. Psalm 119 and verse number 9, it says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? What was he saying? Hey, a young man, David understood this, a young man can get involved in a whole lot of things, but if he'll take heed and hide God's word in his heart, he can avoid all those things getting into his life and dirtying it up. But you know the same goes for every one of us. Those who are mature in life, otherwise known as our brother Steve says, the OLD disease, right? Uh, it doesn't matter what age you are. The word of God can bring cleansing into your life. Uh, so Romans 12 and verse number 2, that is by the re uh, renewing of our minds that we are transformed and that we're not conformed to the world. It's the opposite. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? By the washing of the water of the word. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light, what's the light? The truth of God. As he is in the light, and we don't sin. We do what's right. We do what's pleasing to him. So he says, hey, if you heed my word, I'll give you, what, I'll give you purity. Special purity. Oh, we want to be pure before the Lord. 
But he says, I'll give you a new name. I'll give you a new name, an identification. Your name is your identification, right? Uh, Proverbs tells us that a, a good name is rather to be chosen than riches, right? He says, I'll give you an identification. The world tries to identify us crazy people, Bible thumpers, right? Um, why do they go following after that stuff? The world tries to slander those who follow Jesus Christ. Jesus says, those who follow me, I'll give you an identity. And it's an identity the world can't take away. I think of a, a politician, I won't mention the name because it doesn't really matter, but I think of a politician who, who recently said, hey, someone is going to try to re-identify me, but they can't identify me, I've already been identified. And as a, as a Christian, they stood up and, and said, I am a born-again believer. And they said this in a political ad, and I thought that was pretty good, right? And that, that's amazing, but they had it down right. They had this understanding right. The world can't identify you when you've already been identified. The world can't take away the fact that I am a child of God. No one can take that. And why is it that we aren't satisfied with that identification? Why? Oh, that we would be satisfied. But he says, if you'll follow my word, if you'll repent, I'll give you a new name. I'll give you that identif uh, identity. You don't have to be ashamed of me in the midst of this wicked and adulterous generation. Uh, you don't have to stand ashamed of me because you were ashamed of me in, in, in the world. You don't have to go that way. I'll give you a new name. I'll give you an identification which no man knoweth, saying he that receiveth it. This will be something between me and you. Personal. That's awesome. That is awesome. Oh, that we'd stop worrying about what the world thinks about us and worry about what Jesus thinks of me in private. And that's all that matters. You talk about believers that are going to change their workplace when all that matters is to me behind closed door what Jesus thinks of me. It's all that matters. Jesus is trying to root out world likeness out of the life of Pergamos and the lives of those believers, not because he was trying to withhold something from them, take their joy, take their fun. No. He was trying to give them true, satisfying blessings that only God can give. And Satan oftentimes says, hey, if you follow God's way, you'll never have joy in life. No, no, no. Jesus says, I, I will give you true joy. I will give you true joy. And here's the thing. I already said world-likeness and Christ-likeness can't be had together. you got to choose one. Choose you this day. you got to choose one. And that's a daily decision, isn't it? Right? You with me on that? That's a decision we're going to have to face tomorrow. But I hope you'll choose Christ-likeness. No to world-likeness. But in that, would you not pray with me this prayer? This is, this is, this is my heart as I, as I see Pergamos. Lord, would you identify in me anything that I've allowed that is world-like. And would you help me to confess it and to be right with you? I don't want that in my life because it's going to, it's going to lead me away from being loyal to my Savior. It's going to hurt my Christianity. I, I can't keep world-likeness in. It's like one more illustration. I, there was a used car salesman that uh, was helping our ministry um, sell some vehicles. And uh, he had the suggestion of pouring some uh, sawdust 
in the engine. Now, we figured out pretty quick he wasn't an honest guy. But pouring it down the oil, because, you know, if it has a little bit of a ping. Does anyone else know this? Right? He says, uh, it, it'll, it'll silence it for a little while down the road. Uh, put some transmission oil, get some transmission oil and shine up the paint, right? And it'll look, it'll look better, it'll help the rust go away, get some SOS pads and so forth. Um, it, you, can't, you can't do those types of things. You can't put something inside where there's only supposed to be oil and not have problems down the way. You can't allow a little bit of worldliness, even though it might, for the time, give peace and make life more pleasant. You can't add that in to your Christian living and expect it to be helpful long-term. It's going to come back to bite us. And so the only solution is repent and get back to Jesus. And that's a message for believers on a Sunday night that we need to chew on and we need to ask the Lord, Lord, help me. And I pray that as your pastor and I hope that you'll pray it together for us as a church, you individually. Let's ask the Lord about that. Would you do some business with the Lord right now? Perhaps tonight you need to say, here am I, Lord. Here's my thinking. Here's my schedule. Here's my subscriptions. Here's my itinerary, my plan for this week. Here's my music. Here's my dress. Here's my friendship. Here's my friendships, the relationships I have. Here's my internet browser. Here's my phone. Here's my camera. Here it is, Lord. Is there anything that is world-like? Anything that you would want to show me that, that is one of those few things against me so that I could be right with you? World-likeness and Christ-likeness, they can never be had together. In the quiet of the moment, in the silence of this moment, would you, would you seek the Lord and perhaps make your pew a place of prayer tonight? Lord, I'm giving you permission right now to search me. And not just search me, show me. And not just show me, Lord, I want to change it. Thank you for listening today. For more information about Grace Baptist Church, please visit our website at gracebaptistofkettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.